Welcome to another episode of Geezers and Gurus on HVAC. My name is Carl Darch, and I'm one of the G guys. Can't figure out which one it is. I would like to say thank you to Anchor for helping me with this podcast, for uh, giving me a place to put it and distributing it for me. They're very good. It's on Spotify, as you know, because obviously you know that, because we're here. Today, we're going to be talking about the real reality on efficiency and helping this country and uh, working to uh, save the planet. We're going to go back a little bit and talk about it. If you listen to the politicians and the uh, wackadoodles in, uh, in Washington and stuff like that, you will hear that uh, we're all going to die in, in two and a half years from problems that uh, we can't really fix in any two and a half years or ten years or whatever. Because you see, we have been working on this problem diligently since the 70s. And uh, 74, when the oil embargo started, and let's talk about that. I'm only going to talk about heating and cooling. But everything has changed. Appliances, lights, everything. So, But we're just going to talk about heating and cooling because that's what we do. And we're going to start with heating. 1974, when we had the oil embargo and the crisis happened, the government came in. We got this new, uh, I guess a new agency was uh, started to uh, uh, talk about energy efficiencies and stuff, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's been around forever. And basically what they did was, is they said to the uh, equipment manufacturers, furnaces and all that, uh, we had, we need to make things more efficient. And... uh, According to the furnace manufacturers and the plates, nameplates on the uh, rating plates, I should say, on the furnaces, uh, we had all of our equipment at that time was 80% efficient. Oh, that's what the manufacturers said. And if you look at the rating plates, if you had a 120,000 BTU furnace, you would have 100,000 output. Well, the actual reality, after they started testing these things, because they had to be tested to a certain standard, the actual units were somewhere between 58 and 70 percent efficient. Now that's the unit itself. Uh, we're talking about those old drum style heat exchangers, even the first clamp style heat exchangers. Uh, they were they were not in any way, shape, or form uh, as efficient as they had claimed to be. So we started there. So what did they do first? Well, after they have to do testing to prove it, everybody was scrambling. And the scramble started with, let's get rid of the pilots, okay? So we got spark ignition boxes and t- stuff like that. And the flu was the next thing that was up. Uh, we were had a lot of, I think it was a marathon. It was a bimetal flu damper that we put on every unit until the companies came up with a uh, powered damper. So after the testing on these things, we started to raise the efficiencies into the 70s. But I couldn't get it any higher than the 70s with the, the technology of that day. So then we started to change the technology. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you about the old ignition systems. Because there was a real um, <clears throat> fiasco with those in some ways, too. The uh, standing pilots uh, were obviously gone, and we needed to spark. So where do you get these spark ignition controls from? reality is, is that they were already in existence, but they were being used on rooftop units. 
Penn Basel was one of the larger companies that uh, um, is still in the, under the Penn name now. Ba- I mean, Basel name, Penn has been dropped. But it used to be Penn Controls and Basel Controls, and they went together and became Penn Basel. And their G60 head was the standard of the industry on rooftop units and was very popular at the time. They took that G60 head and mounted it to the top of a gas valve, and there you had spark ignition control and the first ones. But what happens when you take a company that's building electronic stuff, and they're maybe building 250,000 of these um, spark ignition controls a year, and you take them to making millions? The problem that came in was failure rate large failure rate. The problem with the Penn Basel control at that time, it was over $100, somewhere around $125 to $130, $160 to $175 to your customer. Talk about pissed off customers when they have a thing that's two or three years old, only has a year warranty on it, and they have to put out another 160 bucks. A lot of other controls came out, but the Penn Basel was still the standard for a very long time. White Rogers also uh, got into the thing, and uh, at that time, ignition control systems were designed by the manufacturer, and the manufacturer will say to the gas valve uh, supplier, let's take uh, White Rogers, for example, Honeywell was in the same boat, and they would say, we're making an ignition system for our furnace, and this is what we got. We got this type of uh, fan control, we got this type of this, we got this type of that, these type of limits, and you make a gas valve that fits that situation. That worked out pretty nice for the manufacturers of the furnaces, but at one time, because of all these different things that they were doing, now you're doing this across the board and, and up and down and sideways on every type of heating equipment you got, White Rogers made 135 different gas valves. While that couldn't be sustainable, so in today's world, that's why you get a sheet with it and say, oh, these will replace this, and you got a sheet with like 500 numbers on there, and that's the reason why. Because of the simple fact is, is that they made it, no, you can't do that. We have to make these, and we have to make them so that they're universal. Honeywell's in the same situation. They made a bunch of different ones and tried different things. But let's go back to the White Rogers. They had a real interesting one. It was a pilot prover and worked with that G60 head. And that was, if you remember, there's a three-prong, uh, how should I say, uh, module. and had three prongs on it. It was about an inch cube. And it was uh, and it, that was the safety. And it plugged right into the gas valve, and it was three switches. That's what the three prongs were. And that was filled with mercury. That was another thing that failed, not a lot, but often, and it was very expensive. Carrier Corporation, Bryant, which I worked for both of those dealers at the time, uh, had their own. They used to have a two-wire pilot that uh, if the uh, pilot went out, it would just not allow the uh, power to go to the gas valve. Carrier Bryant took the two-wire pilot and made it a three-wire. The two-wire had a white and a green. The three-wire had a white, green, and yellow. Those were for pick and hold valves that were built into their ESO uh, gas valve that they were making. With, they had their own company at the time making gas valves, I think. Anyway, that was uh, pretty interesting. You had a pick which would open up the pilot 
line and it'd start to spark and then the pilot would light. Now the pilot would stay lit and you'd have to, if you looked at it, you had a back flame on there and the back flame shot to a bimetal switch. That bimetal switch would uh, heat up and travel and make the main gas valve, thus the hold. So once the hold came in, the main gas came on and you had flame. So that was theirs, and uh, up until recently, uh, a carrier said that they'll stop making it. But I understand from my guys in the field now that you can still get it at Sid Harvey's, and somebody, other company came in and said, hey, we're going to make those because there's 800 billion of them out there. Um, that was that's actually a, a pretty good system. I, I liked it for the fact this is it's hard to get around it. But the problem with those was if the pilot got a little bit dirty, which they would, you'd have to take it all apart and clean the orifice to make it work again. And they had problems with the internal contacts in them at one time that were getting to a point where they get a little rusty into certain things because they were off all summer. Well, that was the gas valve for them and their little safety. But the sparker, they all had, they had a little sparker box, eh, about two and a half inches wide and about two a little more than three inches tall and that's where the sparker plugged into it that was pretty universal for all of the uh, carrier bryant products for 15 20 years the biggest thing that happened in the whole industry as time went on is that the furnace manufacturers used to design the ignition controls the uh temperature uh, controls the circuit boards uh, how they wanted their furnace to operate well, as time went on, that became basically, you bought an ignition package from White Rogers, Robert Shaw, Honeywell, and it would go on to your furnace. That way, they controlled what they were making, which actually made things better. The first circuit boards, so let's talk about that a little bit, too, because they became very popular, especially, on, oh, I know Bryant had one there for years and years and years, and it controlled the uh, the. Uh, relays they had two big relays on a circuit board that was in the blower compartment and it controlled the blower that was all good uh, but the, when they were first coming out they were having issues with the same problem they were having with cars the circuit boards were failing because of where they were located either by heat warp or a moisture or something until they plastic coated them which solved both problems both in the furnaces and the cars at the time these circuit boards came about because of the recontrolling of the furnaces. We used to have a fan control, and uh, Honeywell and White Rogers both made them. It was a combination fan and limit control, and a lot of them had little buttons so you could pull it out and turn the fan on on a manual. And that was some people's uh, summertime air conditioning. But those, those went away, and a circuit board was controlling the fan operation. We were no longer heating the furnace up to 150 degrees bonnet temperature before we turning on the... Uh, fan. So they were timed on. This increased the efficiency of the system, bringing the fan on a little early, starting to move the air as the heat exchanger is heating up so you're not wasting as much energy up the chimney. That was a, a, the whole idea behind it, and it worked very well and increased the efficiency. So now we have pilots, we have flue dampers, and we have fan controls, and that was the first step. The next step was to design the 80 and in 90% efficient furnaces, that would uh, work uh, good. Um, the first 90% furnace, I don't know if you guys really know this or not, was the Lennox Pulse. It was 92% efficient. That was pretty good. 
the 40,000 BTU furnace was 92% efficient. But if you look at your charts, as those furnaces got bigger, by the time you got over 100,000 BTUs, I think they got ahead 120, 125. But those units dropped down into the high 80s. They were not 90% efficient. The ultimate design was a, uh, a good shot right out of the box by one of the best manufacturers in the entire world, Carrier Corporation. They came up with a serpentine heat exchanger right out of the box and patented that puppy, and uh, it was hard for anybody to get around it. So they had uh, the best furnace. Carrier was always a leader. Carrier made the best air conditioning condensing units ever. Their round ones with all their controls in there were just superior. They lasted forever. Their furnaces were made very superior. They lasted forever. The problem with Carrier Corporation is the same problem that we have with a lot of corporations today. The engineers uh, were thrown out to make an equipment, and we have bean counters came in to make equipment. And when you get bean counters coming in there, that's why you got problems like you do today. Um, the, the 12 engineers that are still left in the field are overwhelmed with trying to make something that won't fail as often as they do today. We have a major issue, and we'll get into that on another episode, just on heat exchangers alone. Comfort Maker, made by Inner City Products, which was the old Singer Corporation, found another way around these uh, bearings that we were having problems and issues with because of the uh, fan motors. Instead of putting it on the exhaust side, they put it on the intake side so they would positively pressurize the heat exchanger and they had regular ribbon burners. That's how they got around it. The other one that uses the positive inside uh, pushing air in is the pulse. The pulse pushes the air in, has a little fan motor that pushes the gas and air in, and then you have an explosion, and it's the explosion, the pulse, the bang, that pushes the fumes out of the pipe and out of the heat exchanger and outside, and that's why they had that sound when they were running. That actually caused an issue in uh, neighborhoods. For example, the city of Royal Oak, where I, uh, near where I live, said that if you had a 90% furnace, you had to be exhaust this thing out the back end of your house because uh, you couldn't go sidewall. It was actually the pulse that... Uh, brought that thing in because people were complaining when they went out the sidewall it would echo between the houses and was extremely annoying for everyone both the homeowner and his neighbors not all of the first 90 percenters were decent design uh, there was a lot of things that they had problems with for example the alloys they were using with the heat exchangers a company that was making one under the uh, magic chef name uh, had a 100 percent failure rate under heat exchangers and they closed up and went out of business. Other companies had major problems too. It took a while before all of this got out, but basically the carrier, Bryant Design, became the standard of the industry, and as soon as the patent ran off on this thing, every other furnace manufacturer in the United States of the world made those heat exchangers the same way. In other words, uh, let's talk about that. It's serpentined. Uh, the burner on the 90% was on top, and you had a downflow flue gases, and it was being um, pushed, sucked through the whole heat exchanger. You had the secondary heat exchanger on the bottom. And what was so good about this thing is, is that that secondary heat exchanger being on the bottom, the coldest air 
coming into that furnace was coming from that bottom through that blower and into that bottom heat exchanger. The coldest air hit that secondary heat exchanger, extracting the most heat out of that flue gases that you could get. As that air rose up the heat exchangers on the outside so that you have this airflow coming up there, as it rose, it came to hotter and hotter parts of the heat exchanger because the flame was on top. So therefore, it was always the coldest air touching a warmer heat exchanger until you got to the very top and left. What a great design. Such a great design that it is what, like I said, this is what we do today. This is what everybody uses. And that's really cool. Their 80 percenters were pretty good too. Now, the only real problems we had with those is that Venter motor in which they, uh, they've actually got around that. As we know today, our Venter motors can take pretty much anything. The patents came off in the late 90s, around 98, and a company called Inner City Products, the, uh, the old Snyder General Corporation, which was Singer, came out with a heat exchanger improvement to the uh, carrier. It was an RPG, RPJ, rolled pressed joint heat exchanger that had no welding on it. And what they were finding were the problems with these heat exchangers were cracking. And uh, the, the issue was is that when heat exchangers are made, like clamshell type heat exchanger, you have two pieces of metal that come together. The ones that were welded were the ones that were cracking. This RPJ uh, seam that the cover maker came up with being rolled allowed for expansion because they found out that the two pieces on the heat exchanger, even though they're, they're supposedly the same metal, have some differences in the metallurgy part of that heat exchanger that made it heat and, uh, how shall I say, expand and contract differently. So the two sides are expanding and contracting at different rates, thus forming a crack on the seam with a uh, the RPJ seam, that seam that had gone away for the Comfort Maker brands, and there was a more than just Comfort Maker, and there was also uh, Tempstar and a few others. So that, um, that was quite good. The other thing that they did was, in between the serpentines, they put these uh, pressed holes in it, and that gave a stretch point stretch for the heat exchangers so that that would prevent the, the cracking. Well, after all this was said and done, it was a, only a short time later that uh, Carrier Corporation bought the now inner city uh, comfort products. It was not inner city. International Comfort Products was a new name for the corporation after they bought Heil Quaker. And uh, Carrier bought them up and put all of those names under the Carrier. For a long time, uh, Carrier allowed the uh, Comfort Maker, Heil Quaker, um, Tempstar division of their company to make their own equipment because they were making them out of had stainless steel primary and two, uh, 432 stainless steel secondary heat exchangers. To this day, Carrier does not have any stainless steel in their equipment. They use a plastic coat secondary heat exchanger, which has been they've been sued many times about this thing, and uh, I know of at least two recalls where they had to give at least $1,000 back to any customer who had a failure on it um, in, in form of the furnace. Of course, that doesn't, 
when you have a failure on your furnace and there was a carrier, well, you're not going to go buy another carrier, and you don't care what the, that, that recall and $1,000 or whatever it was. You're going to buy a different brand. And so carriers sort of squeak by on that like they do on a lot of things. Um, I liked Carrier. I thought they were one of the best companies that was in the business, and like I said, until they got taken over by the, the bean counters. And at a Carrier meeting one time, when we were going through a, a failed uh, circuit board, and we were asking about the circuit board, can't you put a humidifier connection on there? Can't you do this? Can't you do that on the circuit board? And you know what the Carrier representative said to this dealer meeting with all of us guys and we were a big dealer at the time. I was working for a really big guy uh, dealer and you know what they said we don't have to make it any better because we sell everything we make bad attitude and to this day it, it prevails through the industry because like I said the really good engineers the, the guys that are out there supporting the industry and really doing good things they're not in the business anymore they were thrown out because you can make a better product, cost money. You don't want to do that. Look at the profits of the corporation. So we know that we have hot surface ignition now. That is pretty much standard. The first glow bars, that's what we used to call them, the first glow bars, were insanely fragile. This is like laser-fused sand is what they use for them, and they glow at 2,300 degrees when you put 120 uh, volts through it. The first ones broke like crazy. You couldn't even get a furnace on that job. If you bounced it once too hard, you broke the igniter. And I do remember uh, when we first started getting them that I used to carry like three to four igniters on the truck. And one day we had just finished the furnace ignition and we got it up and running and it goes on and you get it fired off and the house starts warming up after being off for the day and everybody's happy. I got in my truck and hit it, started hitting home and I got about... A half hour from home, a half hour from the job, and a customer called and said that, hey, the heat is out. So I had to turn it back around and go back, and sure enough, the freaking igniter was broken. I took that one out and started to put another one in. You could not touch those new igniters with your fingers, and, you, and if you just touched it, just tapped it, just minor, it would snap. Well, the first one, it snapped. The second one... I took my time even longer, slower, got it in there, and got it through. But there was a lot of failures on the first ones. They was continuous until they came up with the new ones. Uh, made by the Carborundum Company, actually, and using a little bit different thing. Those were actually taken from clothes dryers. Did you ever change an igniter in a clothes dryer? No, because that's the, the Carborundum's. Now the new ones there, you can pretty much bounce them, bang them, and do whatever you want to. They're fairly indestructible. Another good move. Let's talk a little bit, too, right here about the Honeywell spark valve system. Uh, that was uh, a 24-volt igniter to a pilot, and then the pilot made the main burners. Very good idea. There was two or three smart valves made, depending on the equipment that went on. Uh, the problem with the smart valve is, is that they had too much electronics in the valve itself. What they do now is they put all the electronics, if you notice, on, into a circuit board, and the gas valve in today's world is basically a two-wire, open the valve up, and you have ignition. So that's what we have today. The smart valve uh, priced itself out of the market because the replacement part of it was just extraordinarily. And interestingly enough, you can't just throw another gas valve on there. You have to stay with the smart valve unless you want to redo the circuit board and everything else. 
kind of limits you. And still to this day, they still sell them smart valves. And I had my house had, I had two of those on there in the first series. They worked. I replaced one, never replaced the other one. They were put in in 1998, so I think that's a pretty good uh, longevity on them. The, the uh, one of them was replaced back in 2013, so it, it lasted a while. The next biggest improvement they made on these circuit boards is the idiot lights that would flash and tell you what's wrong. These came about because of the returned parts. Let's keep replacing parts until we find out what the problem is. Now they tell you if it's the uh, pressure switch, if it's the, the motor, the venter motor, the gas valve, whatever. The lights will tell you what's going on. Much better, much easier for today's technicians. Um, it's hard sometimes. We're going to have a whole series on uh, troubleshooting on today's furnaces and the older ones. That's important. It's, it's good for the uh, guys in the field to be able to uh, figure all this out and get just replace the parts that's bad. I just want to make one little note here right now. If you can hear this little, hear that little squeaking in there? I'm sitting in a chair that was made in 1929. It's uh, out of my old roll-top desk that used to be in my dad's shop. It's considered the finest chair ever. It's a roll chair. It's a tilt chair. It's everything you want it to be but it squeaks. It's made out of wood and some very old metal parts. I have about five more minutes on this broadcast and then we're going to head out of here. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the boiler stuff. Furnaces came along with all their high efficiency stuff and all their whismos and bangers on there and flue dampers and all that stuff long before the boilers did. Um, boilers are now pretty much up to speed as we know with the new combi boilers and everything but it was a real uh, it was part of the deal that you could have a standing pilot on uh, especially steam boilers for a very long time and that's all gone now we have electronic ignition hot water boilers were similar to, uh, not a lot of flue dampers uh, there was a few different companies that made them and uh, you could add them on and even to this day if you're if you get past a certain BTUs, you do not have to have a flue damper on a boiler. Uh, I don't see the logic in that myself, but that's okay. Uh, somebody else has to figure that out. And we're talking about energy efficiency here. So what has happened, too, to make our furnaces better and everything else is our houses have become insulated better by law. And uh, a lot of this energy stuff that has come out has actually changed things so that the equipment had to change, too. Furnaces today are running at a lower temperature and for a longer period of time, which is very, very smart. We're also, if you're getting them sized correctly, uh, if it's zero degrees outside, your furnace should never shut off if it's properly sized. If it does shut off, then it's too big. And that adds to, every time you increase one size bigger in a furnace than you need to, you will spend more than 20% more in fuel costs for your home for the season. This is something to keep in mind, and uh, very few of these uh, furnaces put in today will actually go to that standard. The standard is at zero, 68 degrees. If you match that, that means you're doing good. That means that at zero outside, uh, how warmest you can get your house is 68 degrees. That's properly sized. Because you want to know something, in most parts of this country, 90% uh, of this country, zero only comes once every seven years or so. You don't have it a lot. It's not every year, and it's not all the time, and it's not for a week long.
So I'm going to leave you now with the last of it. And the last of it is, is that the furnaces are only still 79% efficient in their fire rate. All the rest of the stuff that we have done, ECM motors, sensors, uh, running the blower to have it turn on quicker, letting it run longer in the off cycle, or not uh, running continuously. A continuous blower is the best way to, to do it for your house. All of these things will make the furnace more efficient. And the other part of it is, is the system it's hooked up to. Most duct systems are lousy. They're crappy. They need to be sealed. They leak too much air. Uh, if your duct system leaks air, you, if it's not sealed properly, you're going to use 20% more uh, fuel to try and heat your home, and you're losing it. Not, you say, well, it's all still inside the uh, home. Really? When you want your bedrooms on the second floor to be a certain temperature and your furnace is not doing it, two things happen. A, you uh, get really pissed off and turn up the temperature downstairs. B, you have somebody come in and put in a larger furnace. None of those things will solve the problem. The problem is with the system. If you don't have the system correct, there's nothing you can do to make the furnace any better than it is. It's a dumb, inanimate object built in a factory and, and works to uh, laboratory specifications. But most duct systems are really terrible. And uh, we'll get into that whole thing on another episode. Going to wrap this up for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something. Uh, we're trying to give you an idea of where you came from, what's do. Now, if you listen to all those controls, we're going to be talking about how to figure out what's wrong with a furnace and a service side of it in a future episode coming up here shortly. So until the next time, this is Carl Darge from Geezers and Gurus on HVAC. And thank you again to Anchor for helping me out with getting this podcast out to all of you good folks out there. And if you would like to contact us, you can contact us through dargefilms at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Carl Darge saying, Darge did it.